Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering this, His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because, those, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Jesus, it's not a mistake, That's what it says in the Greek. If Jesus, meaning Joshua, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Dreams of utopia have haunted human minds for millennia. When Sir Thomas Moore in uh, 1516 wrote his book, Utopia, he chose the name because in Greek, of course, it means no place. The idea of of, of a utopia, an earthly utopia, the idea of somewhere where everything works out, where there are perfection in relationships as well as in the environment and so on, that there has been a longing to recreate that kind of existence throughout the story of humanity. Uh, Politicians from the left and the right talk sometimes in utopian terms of the changes that can be made in order to create such an environment. They haven't succeeded. They will never succeed. And yet the dream has not failed, probably because the dream of utopia represents a vestigial human memory, a yearning for something perhaps we had and have lost, a yearning for something we are looking for and do not yet possess. It's interesting that that in the Judeo-Christian thinking, the word Shabbat or Sabbath represents something akin to that kind of utopian impulse. Uh, In these verses, the word rest, of course, is used over and over again. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, 
which the author here refers to, it says that God rested from all His work. On the seventh day, after God had made the world in those first six days, and the description we have of creation, on the seventh day, God rested from the work. Not, not that God was tired and needed to rest. Not that He was exhausted and needed refreshment. No, He rested in the sense that He stopped creating. He, he reverted to that being at rest which had typified or, or uh, been His experience before He began to do things exterior to Himself. If you want to understand the Trinitarian life of God before there was anything outside of the life of God, that is creaturely reality, we have to say that the default setting of the life of God is this eternal rest. He is not going anywhere. He is. He just is. His being is constant, and it is satisfying. It is in need of, no, of, any, of anything. God, when He makes the world, does not make it because there's something lacking. His eternal existence is one of being at rest in Himself. And after having made things, having made the world, having made everything that has to do with creaturely existence as we know it and perceive it, and more than we can perceive, culminating in the creation of humanity, God reverts to that eternal rest, no longer creating. Not inactive, of course. It's not the rest of inactivity. He is sustaining what He created. He is maintaining what He made. He is upholding all things, as we learn in chapter 1, uh, by the Son. He is upholding all things by His powerful Word, sustaining the universe as it is. But we're reminded again and again that God is enjoying the life of God right now. That's what this word rest, that's what the word Shabbat, Sabbath, points to in the Bible. The only day in those first seven days in which there is no evening. In other words, there is no end to it. It is a perfectly full, perfectly enjoyable existence. That's what we mean then when we talk about this rest that, that is introduced here in chapter 4. It's already been hinted at, but it already been mentioned. Now he's focusing in on this idea. One of the problems with earthly utopias that never come to anything, no place, uh, as Thomas Moore uh, described them, one of the problems is that our view of utopia, our view of the perfect society, the view of our view of getting somewhere where everybody is happy and everything, everyone is fulfilled and so forth, is that we are tied down to this creaturely reality. Ma Malcolm Muggeridge once said it like this, the only ultimate tragedy is that man makes this world his home. Man makes this world his home. Now, God then is speaking to us this morning. He is intersecting. Whatever thinking we have, He is now disturbing our thinking. He is going to annoy our thinking because that's what He does. In the flow of this chapter, we, we saw in chapter 3, verse 7, 
that whenever, whenever the Bible is quoted, whenever the Bible, the Scriptures are, are quoted in, the, in, in anywhere else in the Bible, what is actually going on, the author tells us, is that the Holy Spirit is saying something to us. In fact, in fact, you can identify something. When God the Father wants to speak, it is the Word that is heard. That is His Son that is heard. His Son is the expression of His mind. So, God who spoke has spoken in these last days by one who is Son, chapter 1. When the Son speaks, He appoints those whom He sends out, the apostles. We read about them in chapter 2. These men who were with Him, who had been in His company for those years, listening to what He was saying and, and observing it, Him in all of His actions, and then reporting what the Holy Spirit gave them to say. And then now the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And whereas God the Father speaks to us in God the Son, God the Son speaks to us in, in the apostles, the, those that He sent out to give us the Word, when the Holy Spirit speaks, He speaks to us in the inscripturated, the written Word of God. It is His Word. He has superintended its being written. He has been guiding, giving the words to, giving, uh, giving the insight into the mind of God that is required in order that when we read the Bible, we are reading the very Word of God. And it is His purpose that that Word of God should be read and preached so that we might hear what the Holy Spirit says. That's the point of chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. That's why when you come to chapter 4, and it's already happened previously, the author doesn't even bother quoting the chapter and the verse, as it says somewhere or in another place. Thomas Aquinas, great theologian of the Middle Ages, says that he's quoting verses that were familiar to people. He doesn't have to tell them the chapter and the verse. They know perfectly well where they came from. And they know perfectly well it doesn't matter where they come from in the text. They are the Word of God. Wherever they come from out of Holy Scripture, they are the very words of God. They have authority from God. And in particular, the author has been focusing his attention at ours on Psalm 95. And in Psalm 95, and he quotes it several times, beginning in chapter 3, verse 7, you find these verses. This is what the Holy Spirit says. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Today, whenever the Holy Spirit speaks to people, He always speaks to them today. Because unlike the prophets of old, what we read about in chapter 1, who spoke to our fathers in different places and in different ways in the past, and unlike those who were alive, the apostles, for example, who heard the Lord Jesus speaking in His day, the days of His earthly life, when we hear the Holy Spirit speak to us in Holy Scripture, He is not talking to the people in the past. He is not talking as our contemporary. He is talking from eternity 
into this very moment so that wherever these words are read and wherever this word is repeated and wherever this word is proclaimed at that moment today, this is what the Holy Spirit says to us in this room. Hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to the churches. Now, at the beginning of this section, then, the author has drawn our attention to what the Holy Spirit says in the Scripture, and here in this section that we're reading, we're going to learn two lessons. What the Holy Spirit's saying to us this morning is, number one, we should be careful how we hear the Word of God, and we should be careful how we heed the Word of God. Let's look at it then from the beginning. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, you know, in, in, this, in this book, eyes up, don't look down. Uh, in, in this book, the, the author addresses the idea of fear. That was just to see if you were listening to me, and you, some of you were. Uh, the author addresses this idea of fear in a number of ways. For example, he's already talked in chapter 2 about fear, and he says this, that one of, the, one of the results of the work of Jesus Christ in coming into the world, His having died on the cross, and then His having risen again from the dead, is this, that now we do not need to fear death. We have been delivered, we've been freed from the fear of death. We no longer are in cringing fear that somehow or other death will have the final word. The resurrection of Jesus has blown away forever any idea that death has the final word. He, by His resurrection, has brought life and immortality to light in the gospel. And then later on in Hebrews, uh, three times over actually, in chapter 11, verse 23 and 27, and in chapter 13, verse 6, he says that we have been delivered, we've been freed from the fear of rulers. He's thinking of the rulers of this present age. Uh, in his day, perhaps, people would have thought of the religious authorities. They may have thought as well of the secular authorities. We today can think of those authorities as well, religious authorities, secular authorities, but we have other authorities that are governing our lives and influencing the way we think and guiding us in what we do. We have the media authorities, which they didn't have to deal with, so our lives are a bit harder than theirs. We have, we have the, 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 the influencers of our society and so on, and these people can be scary. These people can be terrifying as they, as they seek to impress their will and their mind upon us, as they seek to go beyond the bounds of merely expressing an opinion to making their opinion the test of freedom and the test of orthodoxy, if you will, in our culture. We're under the tyranny of rulers, the rulers of this present age. And the author to the Hebrews says that we are delivered from fear of what they say about us, fear of what they may, uh, how they may condemn us or accuse us or what they may do to us. We are free of that tyranny because our lives are hid in Christ, in God, beyond the reach of harm. 
There is no harm they can do to us except kill our bodies. They cannot kill our spirits. They cannot destroy our eternal destiny. They cannot take anything that is of ultimate value away from us. And should they take our life, goods, honor, children, wife, yet is their profit small. These things shall vanish all. The city of God remains. So he's told us that we are not we no longer fear death, nor do we fear the rulers because we don't fear the rulers because we don't fear death. The worst they can do is kill us. And if we don't fear death, then we have power over them. We have power over them. But do you notice here he's saying, Be afraid. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach this. Here he's talking about that reverential awe that we have for God. And he's saying there is a place for a reverential fear of God, an awe of God. And in particular, when you begin to think about what it might mean for you not to have a relationship with God, what it might mean were you one day to meet with God, were you one day to be arraigned before God, as the Bible regularly says we all will be. Well, what will it be on that day if you're not on His side and you have God against you? That's the concern. That should breed within us a reverential fear of God. Now, it's into that situation, therefore, that the, the writer reminds us of two things concerning the good news of the gospel, the Word that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. He tells us, first of all, that it's a word of promise in verse 1. The promise of entering His rest still stands. This is the first time that this word promise is used in the book of Hebrews. It is the distinctive understanding of the writer that the Christian people, you and I today, possess the realities of which God had spoken beforehand in the form of a promise. Uh, you see this. He, he takes us right back to the very beginning of the Bible, and he reminds us that one of the ways in which God has been speaking to the people right throughout the Bible has been in terms of a promise of something that is to come. And the original context here is that he's talking about the children of Israel uh, when they went to Canaan, the promised land. The leader was one Jesus. That's the Greek name, of course, for Joshua or Yeshua. And Joshua, Yeshua was a, a lieutenant, a lieutenant, lieutenant, depending on what side of the Atlantic you're on. I don't know where they get the FT from lieutenant, but there you go. Uh, the lieutenant of the... Of, uh, of uh, the, the great Moses, and it was Joshua's task to take the children of Israel across the River Jordan into the Promised Land. And the reality is that, of course, many of them did not end up going into the Promised Land. But in the book of Hebrews, this word, this idea of the promise refers not only to the land of Canaan, which it did to the children of Israel, but it also refers to the glory of God 
which believers will one day enjoy when they enter into the life of God, the rest of God, which is the life of God, which is eternal life, which is coming to us. So, when you read that word promise, I want to say to you this, that promise is pointing you to something that is at the very heart of the package that God promises to give to everyone who comes to Him in Jesus' name. It is that eternal life that is the enjoyable life of God Himself as God. He promises to bring creatures like us into that eternal life. He who has been eternal always is going to grant eternal life to creatures that they will always enjoy with Him, <coughs> from our perspective, going forward into all eternity. That promise, he says, the promise of rest, the promise of entering into the life of God, the eternal life of God, still stands. It stands for you this morning. You may find it this morning. You may find eternal life this morning. The promise still stands. And what has been promised has been proclaimed. Look again at verse 2. For this good news came to us just as to them. It came to us just as it came to them. Now, that's a strange way of putting it. Because the language that's used here is language Christians recognize immediately. I'm not sure whether uh, Jews would recognize it immediately, the way in which it's used here. Those words, good news, give us the, the expression evangelized. We've been evangelized the way they were evangelized. The word evangel is the word good news. We've had the gospel preached to us, he's saying, the way they had the gospel preached to them. And you notice the, the way in which he puts it here. What we have experienced is exactly what they've experienced. That's not the way we think. We normally kind of read back into the Old Testament with us being the major players, but here they're the major players. What has happened to us happened to them. The gospel was preached to them, we're told. Now, you think about it for a moment. In what way can we say that the Christian gospel was preached to the people in Moses' day? Well, Moses had a very long ministry with the people of God, and in that ministry, he was teaching them, preaching to them all the time. And we know what he preached. He preached Everything he preached was taken down in notes and, and, and preserved and protected and so on. The Holy Spirit made sure we've got it in our hands. And you've got in your hands this morning, on your phone or in a book form, the very words that Moses taught. It, it starts with the book of Genesis and ends with the book of, uh, and ends five books later. The old five books, first five books of the Bible are all Moses' ministry. And he begins with the promise. He begins with Adam and Eve just outside the gates of the Garden of Eden after having broken God's one law and having condemned the rest of us because they were acting on our behalf. And outside the doors of Eden, God comes to Eve and says to Eve, you are going to have an offspring, a particular male offspring. 
And this male offspring who's coming to you is going to undo the damage that has been done by your husband and yourself in the garden. He is going to undo the damage. He is going to crush Satan. He is going to tread Satan under his feet and grind in his skull with his heel. He will be hurt, but Satan will be crushed. That's the very first promise in the Bible. You go a few chapters later on, God comes to this man, Abraham. He is the father of the Semitic nations. He comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, I'm going to tell you a little more about what I said to Eve outside the garden. This seed that's coming, this offspring who's coming, this male offspring who's coming is going to come from you. You're, You're going to have a descendant who will come from you, Abraham, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 children. And at the end of Jacob's life, as he's talking to those 12 children, it's the very last bit of the book of Genesis, you find him pronouncing a blessing on all of his children, but there's one blessing that he pronounces on Judah. That's where the Jews come from. And he says to Judah, there's going to come from you a a ruler, a leader, a prince, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he comes, to him will the gathering, the assembling of the nations be. In other words, the child promised to Eve will come from Abraham's line, and will particularly come from the tribe of Judah, he will be a Jew. All of that is in the preaching ministry of Moses. He preached the gospel to these people. He preached the promise of God's Word that there would be an undoing of the past. He then preached the gospel as he unfolded the laws of God that describe both the ways in which we fall short of God's glory and the means by which we might be reconciled to God by the shedding of blood and by sacrifice and by being pardoned by God in His goodness. He preached the gospel to these people. And every element of the gospel is to be found proclaimed there by Moses. But there was a problem He preached to them, but you see how the problem is stated, for the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They weren't among those who believed, if you will. The problem, in other words, was going to lie in their reception of the message. It had been spoken to them, but it was ineffective in them. Why was it ineffective in them? Why did it not profit them? Well, he gives them the answer. Their hearing was not joined with faith. Because these three elements, you find them coming up again and again in the Bible. You find them in in Romans chapter 10. How are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? The Word of God has to be preached. It has to be 
uh, heard and it has to be believed. And the problem with these people in the days of Moses and Joshua is that they did not believe the Word of God. They did not believe God. They saw all the evidences of God at work. They saw all the evidences of God's supernatural being all around them. They, they had benefits you and I sitting in this church have never had in our life in terms of seeing monumental supernatural events occurring before their eyes, and yet they did not believe. When Joshua and Caleb, ten others, went across the river to the promised land, have a look, check it out. They came back with their reports. Ten of them said, all we see are problems. They were obviously the Brits in the bunch. They, all, they see are, all we see are problems. We can't do this, and we can't do that, and they're there, and there's this mountain, and that mountain. It's all problem, 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 problem. Then you two Americans in the bunch, and they were the can-do people. They said, oh, we can do this. <laughs> Absolutely. Except you need to recover your can-do spirit. Would you please? We, we can do this. We see the grapes and clusters fall. We see God is in it all. But the people believed the majority report, rejected the minority report. They did not believe the Word of God. And because they did not believe the Word of God, a whole generation, I mean, it had taken them crossing the Red Sea a couple of months, they get to the River Jordan. It's not a long way to go. They get there to the River Jordan. They stand there and they wait while the spies check it out. When they come back with their report, they don't believe them. They don't believe God. And they spend the rest of the 40 years wandering around the desert of, si of Sinai until the whole generation, except for two men, die out. Why did that happen? because they did not believe God. And the writer is warning us this morning, if you don't believe God, you will miss out on more than simply getting across the Jordan into the promised land. You will miss out on more than simply having a lovely, beautiful place in which to grow up and have your kids and so on. You will miss out on something far more significant you will miss out on God's forever rest, on God's eternal life. You will miss out on God altogether. That's what's at stake. That's why He's saying to, to us this morning, we, we have to hear the Word of God. We have to believe the Word of God. The Word has to be mixed with faith. That's how to hear a sermon, by the way. Believe God when He speaks to you today. That's why Paul was so pleased as he wrote to the Thessalonians, and he said to the Thessalonians, we thank God continually because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as it actually is, the Word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And there's an alternative if you hear the Word of God and you don't believe it, here's what Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The Word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. 
So this is not a neutral event. Coming to church is not a neutral event. The words are words of life, but they're also words of condemnation if we reject them, if we don't believe in them. Well, how good it is then to come back to this text and to see that we're to be careful how we heed the Word of God. The promise is this, the promise of entering God's rest still stands. That's what I want to make clear to you today. You can find eternal life today. It still stands. And he's encouraging us to consider what this eternal life involves. He, he, he talks about himself. We who have believed enter that rest, he says. This future rest of the people of God, if you like, is in two parts. He, he makes it clear that this rest is something that is not of this creation. He says that later on in the book. It is not of this creation. It is of the new creation. This forever life of God, this forever eternal life of God, this rest of God is something that you get part of now. It begins now. But its real fulfillment is future. But it starts today. We who have believed enter that rest. You know, in the New Testament, the idea of the new creation involves the recreation of everything in creaturely reality, the, the heavens, the sky, the universe, even humanity. Our bodies are recreated. We are given glorified bodies like His glorified body. Everything is going to be made new. But that being made newness that comprehends everything in the last day begins with my interior life, my spirit, my soul, who I am, being made new. My responses to God being made new. My, my faith in God being made new. M me being made new. The beginning of that starts when we are born again, when the rebirth, the new life, begins to pervade life now. The life of the age to come penetrates the life of the here and now. It penetrates the heart and mind of people. We who have believed enter now that rest. We get a, we get a taste of it right now, he said. Do you see how he describes it? He goes on to describe it by reflecting on the rest of creation. God rested on the Sabbath day from all His works. This rest is not something new. God made things then he stopped making things and enjoyed himself and his company, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the life of the eternal life of God. He enjoys that even to this moment. And that's the life that you and I are invited to enter. Canaan was only ever a pointer to this. So, for example, he's just been quoting from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was written hundreds of years after they'd gone into the promised land and had been living there for hundreds of years in the promised land. And yet in Psalm 95, the psalmist quotes from the, the Old Testament, adds these words, the Holy Spirit says, today. And here is the writer saying to us, today. And here am I saying to you, today. If you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Whoever has rested, entered God's rest, 
has rested from the works, his works as God did from his. John Owen, by the way, thinks that refers to the Jesus, the other Jesus, not Joshua, the other Joshua, not to Moses' sidekick, but to our Savior, who came into this world, and he did his works here. He did his works of obedience. He fulfilled the Father's will. He did the Father's works. He, he did all that was required for our salvation. He did it all here, and he has now entered into his rest. And because he did that, you and I can share in that. Everything that was happening to those people in the Old Testament was a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. And what God does for us is this. He plants in our week one day. He plants now the first day of the week. Before Christ came, it was the last day of the week that was Shabbat. For us today, it is the first day of the week because a new thing has happened. A new creation has begun. God has begun the new thing. He's now pointing us forward to something that is already begun and will be completed when Christ comes again. And so, the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, is a day to think about these things. It's a day in which the Word of God comes to you week in, week out, and says to you, today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Don't turn away in disbelief. Don't reject it outright. Think about it. What is at stake is that humanity is still searching for existential rest, a rest of soul where we can relax mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but we don't have it. Nobody has it. We long for that peace of mind and spirit, and we search for it here and there. We, we don't find it. We, we look for techniques to find relaxation, and they give us a bit for a while, but we don't find that inner relaxation of spirit. Augustine, one of the great theologians of the church in the fourth century, said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And Augustine once prayed a prayer, and I'm going to read that prayer to you now. He prayed, these are his words, Lord God, grant us peace, the peace of rest, the peace of the Sabbath, the peace without any evening. All this most beautiful array of things, all so very good, will pass away when all their courses are finished. For in them, the things of this world, there is both morning and evening. But the seventh day is without an ending, and its sun has no setting, for you have sanctified it with an everlasting duration. After all your works of creation, which were very good, you rested on the seventh day, although you had created them all in unbroken rest. And this is so that the voice of your book might speak to us with the prior assurance that after our works, we might find our rest in you, in the Sabbath of life eternal, that we might find our rest in you, in the Sabbath 
of life eternal. Brothers and sisters, I want to talk to you as Christian people. We are on a journey. We pause once a week to remind ourselves that we already, in the ledgers, on the books, and by right, belong to that other country. But we're moving towards it inexorably. Jesus may come this week, in which case all together, along with all of the saints who have died and gone home to heaven, will be transformed and given resurrection bodies, and all at once and all together in a moment's time, enter into the fullness of that eternal rest. He may not come this week. Some of you may die before He comes. At the point of death, your spirit will enter into His presence. This is the great joy of the Christian. This is the great hope of the church. This is what gets us up in the morning. This is what sends our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world to death in confidence because they've received the Word of God and mix it with faith. They have believed God. Let me exhort you today. Believe God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in Your good grace You would so minister Your Word to our hearts that in grasping it and believing it, we might be sustained through this, our earthly life and pilgrimage, and brought into that everlasting glory. We ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.